Hello, and welcome to This is Modern Rock, the podcast that takes a look at the modern rock charts one month at a time. I'm your host, Will Westerkow, and you're listening to March 1993. Today, I've got a special guest, Steve Bryant. Hi, Steve. Hi, Will. How's it going? It's a pleasure to join you. I enjoy your podcast. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm glad to have you here. Steve, I'm excited to talk to you about your music and music of 1993. But first, we've got our mystery achievement. I'm going to play a clip from a song from the lower reaches of the modern rock charts from March 93. Listeners, see if you can figure out what it is, and we'll uh, share what it was at the end of the episode. This reached number 25 in March I was doing some research into Sacramento's Quad 106.5, which was an important radio station for me back in the day. And I was going through their playlists, and when I got to 1996, I knew pretty much every song that they played in their rotation. But I did find a band called Chance the Gardener that I had never heard of before, and there were two songs from that band that were getting some radio play on Quad during the year. So I looked it up, and I uh, found this album, was very intrigued by it, and you were in that band. I have to say, hats off to you for digging so deep that you uncovered Chance the Gardener, a record that I think very, very few people heard. It was a really long, strange saga of how all that came to be. The first band I played in was a band called Wonderful Broken Thing. It was acoustic punk. We recorded two albums and did nothing with them. But there were a couple of cassettes, and a friend of mine who was living with me at the time, who became a pro skater, uh, Ron Allen, took one of the cassettes down to uh, L.A. and his uh, skateboard company, H Street, started putting the songs on skate videos. And nobody even talked to us about this. We just heard, hey, your songs are on these videos. And we thought, oh, God, people are going to hate us because... Uh, you know, hardcore skate punk and everything, and we were like this acoustic craziness. But for whatever reason, it was like a cult thing, and people all over the place were trying to find it. Well, when I got with Bohemia and Susan Farish, she released both albums 20 years later, so I got all these emails from people. I've been looking for this for 20 years. Wow. So the second band after that was a band called Bone Games. We did one album at a horrendous studio south sacramento very diy and when the bass player went off to study at uc santa barbara he took some cassettes with him and put them in a mom and pop record store and they sat there gathering dust until roberta peterson from warner brother records came in and she said give me everything that's unsigned in the store and they threw it all in a giant bag and she actually listened to it all and she loved that bone games record and I had moved like three times since, and she had her assistant assistant track me down, and I had no idea who she was, but 
she was a legend at Warner Brothers. She signed Devo, Katie Lang, Dire Straits, Flaming Lips, Jane's Addiction. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. Yeah, wow. So anyway, she said she wanted to sign us. And we said, well, Roberta, what do you want to sign us for? We're just going to lose you money. And she said, uh, that's funny. That's exactly what the Flaming Lips told me. So we did one record. She wanted us to use Rob Cavallo, which I was really into. He did Green Day Dookie. And maybe somebody would have heard the album if, if he'd have done it. But Stu was too scared. And we went with Tom Mellon in San Francisco. He did a lot of the early uh, American Music Club stuff. Mm -hmm. So anyway, before we finished, the whole upper management exploded at Warner Brothers. And Roberta went and became head of A&R at Geffen. So we knew we were doomed. But the program director at Quad in Sacramento really liked us. And he put it in a medium rotation, and he was going to up it to heavy, and they were going to do a win it before you buy it weekend, and Warner Brothers wouldn't even send him a box of CDs. Wow. Our manager was on the phone just, like, screaming at him and telling him, hey, you know, a top – 10 radio station commercial stations got us in medium and they're going to go to heavy rotation and warner brothers people just said no they don't you're lying so, okay yeah wow <laughs> yeah so with chance the gardener did the band just get dropped and there was no chance for a second album well oh god not long after the album came out we were going to leave on a West Coast tour. It was kind of a toilet tour. Okay. I was under no illusions, but I thought it would be kind of a fun holiday from work for a while. And so we were going to leave on a tour, and Stu said, I'm not going. And then he just sort of, shortly thereafter, he left town without telling anybody what was going on. And I don't know how many months later after that, he committed suicide. But I, I'm just so sad that the world didn't know the rock star that Stu was because he just wrote an incredible, incredible set of songs, and he was the real deal. Wow, that's in intense. Yeah, the Chance of Gardener ended with Stu's death. Uh, I mean, without Stu, it, you know, no, the band's over. Yeah. Well, that album is available on Spotify, so if there's listeners here who want to join the club of people who have heard the record it's available you can all go search up chance the gardener the day the dogs took over and uh it's there for your listening and enjoyment and wonderful broken thing and six toad morton's albums and there's two universal steve's album i did a band we were all named steve well cool and toad morton's is your your current band yeah i've been doing that well, really, ever since Chance the Gardener ended, although I took a hiatus for a while to do the two Universal Steve's records. Should we talk March 93? Absolutely. The first song we're going to hear is from a band called Belly. I just want to clarify, this is not the Canadian-Palestinian rapper who I had never heard of, you know, until I started doing research. But I was sort of shocked to find that Belly the Rapper has charted higher on the U.S. Hot 100 than Belly the Band did. <laughs> so, well, it's a different world. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, Belly the Band was formed in Newport, Rhode Island in 1991. This band is led by Tanya Donnelly, who we've talked about before. She was a founding member of Throwing Muses, along with her stepsister, Kristen Hirsch. And uh, she was also a founding member of The Breeders, along with Pixies bassist Kim Deal. Are you familiar with Belly? I'm a big fan, a big fan. 
you know, the, the pixies and throwing muses and belly and breeders, all that stuff is to me what alternative rock is. It just helps define it. So Belly's first album, Star, was something of a surprise hit. It went to number two in the UK. It sold more than 500,000 albums in the US. They released four singles from the album, three of which charted on the modern rock charts. The biggest of those singles was Feed the Tree, which actually cracked the Hot 100, making it to number 95. And it spent three weeks at number one on the modern rock charts. Let's go ahead and give it a listen. Here's Feed the Tree. This little squirrel I used to be slender bike down the stairs. They put silver where her teeth have been, baby silver tooth. She grins and grins. What a great song. <laughs> yeah, it's a good one. I absolutely love Tony Donnelly's voice. And then the line, take your hat off, boy, when you're talking to me, be there when I feed the tree. Mm -hmm. uh, what a great line. I mean, I just picture an old New England dude who's like, respect me, kid. You may not make it to my age. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like that line a lot, too. I, I misheard that line as take your head off for so long, and I just oh. <laughs> kind of assumed it was it was nonsense. But um, I read that the song is about commitment and respect. I don't know about the rest of the lyrics, but you can hear it in that line with the chorus for sure. In case anyone, any listeners aren't familiar with what feed the tree means, the idea is basically someone being buried I guess their body's decomposing and providing nutrients for the tree. So, Oh, yeah, becoming soil yeah. from which all life grows. Mm -hmm. Soil is dead organic material. It ain't just ground up rocks. So, yeah, be there when I die. Respect. That's right. <laughs> so, Gil Norton, Echo and Bunnyman, Throwing Muses, Pixies, Doolittle, Bossa Nova, Trompe Le Mans, Catherine Wheel, Counting Crows, Foo Fighters, K's Choice. These producers, a lot of times they're engineers also, but if they're not brilliant engineers, then they only work with brilliant engineers. And the guitar tones and textures and arrangements are so great in that song. I, I really love the way the guitars are used. Yeah, I do too. It's a good sound, and I totally agree about Tanya's singing. I really like it when she uh, does that lift on the second pre-chorus, I guess it would be. David Lowry and Camper Van and Cracker does that a lot, uses that to really good effect. And I, I love that, too, because she's singing kind of kind of mellow in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And then she uh, it does that lift and uh, completely works. So Belly released one more album after this in 1995. It's called King. And that album was not really a hit. Two songs from it charted on the modern rock charts anyway, but uh, it didn't sell super well. The band broke up. But they did reform in 2016, and they released a surprise third album in 2018. So technically, they're still a band. There could be future releases from them, as far as I know. Well, some of us are lifers, you know. You just don't ever quit making music. Yeah. 
All right, well, let's go on to the next number one, Depeche Mode. I think this is their third number one charting modern rock song and their eighth song that they put on the charts total. Out of 21, actually, they just keep on going. Their most recent alternative rock hit was in 2023. Wow. I mean, they've charted on some chart every decade since the 80s, and I can't really think of too many other bands that have managed to pull off that feat. That's remarkable. Yeah. And, you know, they were successful in the U.S., but not compared to the U.K. In the U.K., I think they have 44 songs that were in the top 40. Holy moly. So I'm just going to give the very brief rundown. This is an English band. They were formed in 1980. Vince Clark was originally a member. He went on to form Yazoo or Yaz or however you want to pronounce that band's name. And he also co-founded Erasure. But the rest of the band stuck around. Dave Gaughan, Martin Gore, Andy Fletcher... They picked up Alan Wilder at some point early on, and that quartet is really like prime Depeche Mode lineup. Their previous album was from 1990. That was Violator. That was a huge album. I think it went triple platinum in the U.S. It had a bunch of hit singles. It took them three years for a follow-up, but that's what we're going to be hearing from now. This is their eighth album called Songs of Faith and Devotion. It wasn't quite as big a hit as Violator was, but it still managed to become the band's only number one album in the U.S. I guess since we're talking about producers, we should mention that it was produced by Flood. Oh, amazing, amazing guy. He engineered Joshua Tree yeah. with Eno and Daniel Lanois, and then he did Octum Baby with Lanois and Steve White and Eno. Smashing Pumpkins, Melancholy, Infinite Sadness, he produced, I guess. P.J. Harvey, Ministry Killers, Nick Cave. Good Lord. Yeah. I was going to say, he's he's, he's kind of the go-to guy in the mid-'90s for, like, dark, somewhat electronic-oriented modern rock. Yeah, and, uh, you know, when you got a producer who's also, you know, started out as an engineer, they know how to make great records. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. So, a violator was the album where the band was working together really well at its collaborative peak. Songs of Faith and Devotion was the album where the individual members were starting to butt heads and struggling to find common ground. I read one source describe it as their white album, in a sense, Hmm. because they were having trouble even being in the same room as each other at certain points during the process. Martin Gore, he's their principal songwriter at this point, and he was... Understandably stressed out by having to follow up Violator, David Gaughan had moved to L.A. and he was spending a lot of time with some heavy guitar-based modern rock bands like Jane's Addiction and Soundgarden, and I think he was getting really influenced by that up-and-coming grunge scene. He also, I think, had a pretty serious heroin addiction he was struggling with. And um, Alan Wilder, during these recording sessions, he decided he was going to quit the band Although it didn't happen until after the album was done. I think he stuck around for a, a while, but this was the point where he, he knew he was finished. So it was a tough process to get this album done. I would say on a whole, the album relies more on live instruments than a lot of their previous work, although sometimes those live instruments were sampled and chopped up and repurposed. But uh, it does have uh, more of a heavy guitar rock sound than a lot of their earlier work. We're going to hear the first single off of Songs of Faith and Devotion. The song's called I Feel You, 
and it was a number one hit on the modern rock charts for five weeks. Wow. Here it is. At the risk of infuriating Depeche Mode fans everywhere, I just don't think this is a good song. I think that's fair. <laughs> I think it sounds great in terms of like capturing the mood that I think it's trying to capture. You know, there's cool stuff going on. There's like weird pulsing going back and forth between my left and right channels here. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, flood. Yeah. But... I was imagining, what if he had an acoustic guitar, he's an open mic night, and he's playing that song? <laughs> I, well, exactly. And I was thinking the exact same thing. Uh, yeah. I was trying to picture Johnny Cash covering this one, because he did a great version of Personal yeah. Jesus, and that one works. I can't imagine that Johnny Cash could do I Feel You, and anyone would want to listen to it. No. I mean, he would listen and go, yeah, melody, not there, no, yeah. not happening. Yeah. The drony repetitive guitar doesn't work for me. The noise in the beginning, it's like, okay. Oh, kind of right. a tire squealing <laughs> sort of sound? Yeah. I read one review that I think it said something to the effect of, this song is not going to win the band any new fans. And I tend to agree. I think that this is a, a song that is going to serve very well for fans who already like Depeche Mode, but I don't think it's going to win over too many new converts either. Yeah, and I get that. I get that. There was a reviewer, evidently, in the Philadelphia Inquirer who, quote, a terrifying mystical experience. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. I mean, it has got the very hypnotic thing. Mm -hmm. that That's true. I suppose if you're into that, it could really work for you. Yeah. yeah. Well, Depeche Mode's going to be back plenty of times. And in fact, they're going to be back, I think, two months from now with another number one hit. And I think a song that is better than this one. So if you're a Depeche Mode fan, come back soon. There's more for you. Yes, and I apologize to the Depeche Mode <laughs> fans. Sorry. Well, let's keep going. There's no more number ones for the month. We're going to go a little lower down the charts to number nine, and we're going to hear from Jellyfish. This is a band that was formed in San Francisco, California, in 1989. There's two primary songwriters in the band, singer-slash-drummer Andy Sturmer and keyboardist-slash-singer Roger Manning. These guys bonded over a shared love of jazz and post-punk and big pop-leaning rock bands like Cheap Trick and ELO. I first heard about this band in college. There was this guy. I feel like this guy's name was Rock and Roll Joe. Like, I kid you not. I, I don't think he was an actual student. I think he was like one of those guys that, you know, was pushing 30 and... He was working in the cafeteria and hung around the quad to talk to undergrads. Right. And every now and then I'd walk by him and he'd like flag me down and tell me some interesting rock and roll facts or like share his latest thoughts on the number of orgasms in Led Zeppelin albums or whatever it might be. But 
<laughs> well, one day uh, walking through the quad, I ran into Rock and Roll Joe, and he was very excited to share with me the greatest rock and roll band of all time. And I was like, I got to hear this. Got to wow. know who it was. Who, who is the greatest rock and roll band of all time? And he's like, Jellyfish. I'm just going to leave it with that, Jellyfish. I'm like, okay. I like don't know anything about them, but I, I'm going to check it out. And I did check it out, and I um, I like Jellyfish. I, I don't think I would label them as the greatest rock and roll band of all time, but I think they're interesting. <laughs> they're doing something that's kind of cool. Their first album got a lot of critical acclaim, sold maybe 100,000 albums, which I think was disappointing for the record label. Generally, the consensus is that they were out of step with prevailing musical trends. Yeah, timing is everything. And I think they were just really unlucky. I mean, Nevermind came out in 91. Mm -hmm. And then to release this record, which it's an extraordinary piece of recording. I mean, it's wow. (laughs) Yeah. I also read that they like pre-production writing eight-hour days, six days a week for six months, and then six months in the studio. Yeah. And I read the budget was $300,000. I don't know if that's true, but wow. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know how to pronounce the producer. Is it Albie Galutin? Is that how you say his last name? I'm going to say yes. (laughs) I don't know. The guy's clearly a genius. He's got like nine patents for music technology. Saturday Night Fever, Bee Gees. 13 number one singles in the U.S. he produced. And then Jack Joseph Pugue, I guess how you pronounce it. His production list is insane. And some things on there that I love. Sunvolt, Wide Swing Tremolo, Green on Red, Dire Straits, Weezer, Black Crows, L7, Not a Surf, Better Than Ezra, Goo Goo Dolls, Stone Temple Pilots, Green Day, No Doubt, Fiona Apple. I mean... Man, oh man, yeah. to have both those guys and six months in the studio and <laughs> yeah. big budget. You can tell from listening to the yeah, album. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. One thing I found really fascinating about these guys, too, is that even though huge numbers of the general public were not buying their first album, there were a lot of established musicians who didn't mind that their tastes were out of step. After the first album came out, They were contacted by Kurt Smith from Tears for Fears. Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys got a hold of them and wanted to do a songwriting session with them. Ringo Starr. Ringo Starr. Mm -hmm. He had them write some songs for them, although I think only one of their songs ended up on his album. But I also want to mention they were handpicked by Harry Nilsson to contribute a song to a Nilsson tribute album that was done shortly before his death. So just some really cool, really established musicians that were digging what these guys were doing. I mean, if you spend any time in the studio and you listen to that recording, it's, yeah, I'm not surprised. It's, it's an amazing recording. All right, well, we're getting to 1993, and the band is doing their second album. It's called Spilt Milk. And like you said, the production is bonkers. This is the album where the band feels like they had actually fulfilled their vision for the band. You know, it's power pop, but you can hear like Queen and Beach Boys and Cheap Trick. Yeah, a minute and a half in, all of a sudden you're hearing Bohemian Rhapsody harmonies, which is amazing. And then, yeah, definitely Pet Sounds and Wowie Zowie. Yeah. There were four singles released from this album. 
Only one of them charted on the modern rock charts. The album was not a hit. And we're going to listen to the one charting song. This is called The Ghost at Number One, and it reached number nine on the modern rock charts. Can you believe all that happens in three and a half minutes? No. <laughs> That's a lot going on. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. I mean, production, uh, unreal. Wow. You can hear so many things. I mean, there's English Settlement in there, and there's Bowie in there, and there's some pet sounds. And yeah, there's... some uh, zombies. Yeah. I really admire it as a studio work. It's not my kind of thing, mm -hmm. but I'm not surprised that Ringo Starr and uh, Brian Wilson and others were calling him. And I, I just think if the timing had been different, you know, if they were like 1970s, that it could have been a big deal. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, but it is. I mean, there's a lot to admire. I really like this a lot, and I should because it sounds like a ton of bands that I really love. After the second album failed to be a hit... Sturmer and Manning briefly tried to keep the band going, but they found that their musical interest had begun to drift apart. Their friendship had become strained. The band called it quits in 1994. Sturmer went on to work as a songwriter for a number of cartoons, and Manning formed some other bands. One of those was Imperial Drag, and they actually managed a modern rock chart hit, so we might hear from them a few years down the line. The other band was called the Moog Cookbook, and they never charted, but this band, I love. I think they rule, although they're also kind of a joke. So it kind of <laughs> it depends on your point of view. But it's, uh, it's two guys using all Moog synthesizers covering well-known songs. The first album's pretty much all 90s rock. They've got Moog synthesizer versions of Buddy Holly, Black Hole Sun, Even Flow, and all that sort of thing. And then the second album's classic rock. So if that sounds like something you might be into, and I, I recognize that that's not to everyone's taste, but if it sounds intriguing, check it out. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, why not? Yeah. Vogue synth versions of things, sure. Yeah. All right, we're going to listen to one more band. This is Ween. They were formed in New Hope, Pennsylvania in 1984. They're led by Gene and Dean Ween. That's not their real names. I think their names are Aaron Freeman and Mickey Melchiondo. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. And the name Ween comes from a word that the duo created, which is a cross between a wuss and a penis. And I think that probably gives you an idea about what the band is going to sound like, too, if you haven't heard them. And <laughs> if you have heard them, well, this one only once, you'll never forget it. That's true. <laughs> yeah, and... I don't know. Are you, have you listened to a lot of Ween? Are you, are you a fan? Well, here's the thing about Ween. I appreciate the idea of Ween way more than the reality. 
And a little bit of Ween goes a long way for me. Okay. But I am so glad that Ween exists that Ween found the success they did. I, I think it's great. And I, I take great vicarious enjoyment of Ween through all of my musician friends who absolutely love them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they inspire a cult-like following that's just absolutely amazing. And I have a lot of respect for just the pure creative exuberance and the fact that, you know, it was DIY. And uh, actually, Ned Raggett loved this particular album, Pure Guava. He called it the greatest major label debut after an indie career of the decade. Wow. And he said, essentially, it was outtakes from their previous DIY stuff, and it was still one of the best albums ever recorded, in his view. Yeah. (laughs) So I think they're hilarious. Yeah, I think I'm on a similar page as you. I appreciate them more than I actually like them. And I have a lot of friends who really love this band and are amazed that they're not one of my favorites. So, I, you know, maybe it's time to give them another try. Well, the range of influence and styles of music, I mean, they're, they're pulling from everything under the sun, and yet what comes out is ween. Mm-hmm. So, it, boy, presence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in 1992, I guess at the end of 1992, Ween released their third album, Pure Guava. And the only single released from the album is called Push the Little Daisies. It was a minor hit, but it got some MTV exposure. It appeared on Beavis and Butthead. I remember hearing this one on the radio a couple times when I was in high school and going to school the next day and being irritated by it, but singing it <laughs> with my friends because we were so like amazed and shocked <laughs> and couldn't get it out of our heads. And did you know at the time what the supposedly the push the little daisies and watch them come up is? You know, I didn't know at the time, and I'm not sure I still know. Who knows if this is true, but I read it was uh, female nipples. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea if somebody just made that up. <laughs> yeah, you know, with Ween, I, I could see it being true or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could see it. We'll yeah. go. We'll go with true. Definitely true. Okay. You heard it here first. (laughs) All right. Well, let's listen to it. This is uh, number 21 on the modern rock charts. Push the little daisies. If you think that I'm a loser, well, you suck. Because you know I ain't nothing but a user of your love. I can't get enough. A classic novelty (laughs) song for junior high schoolers everywhere. Oh, boy. Of whatever age. Yeah. It's so so horrible, and yet I'm going to be singing this song for the rest of the day. So, again, you know, you got to hand it to them because it's just them, and they're having fun, creativity, sense of humor. I mean... That's not 300 grand and A-list producers there. (laughs) (laughs) No. But, I mean, just in case, you know, anyone else is not familiar with Ween, the rest of their catalog doesn't really sound like this. Like, it's 
still ween. Everything they do is ween, but yeah, you should. Oh, it's so all over the map. Yeah. I mean, 12 (laughs) Golden Country Greats is a great sounding country western album, you know, albeit with, you know, songs like Piss Up a Rope and, you know, the ween sense of humor. And I read that there was some A-list Nashville session guys who wouldn't play on it because of the sorts of lyrics that were there. <laughs> but they had major heavy hitters yeah. playing on it. So, no, their influences are absolutely from everywhere. Yep. You can't name a kind of music that they're not channeling through the the madness of ween. Right. This song ended up in the book, 1001 Songs You Must Hear Before You Die. <laughs> I guess that's true. <laughs> I don't know. And we'd have managed, uh, they managed one more modern rock hit. They stuck around for a long time before breaking up in 2011, but they got back together four years later. So they've not had a studio album since 2007, but they still do play shows and release live albums on occasion. So who knows? We might hear from Ween again. Well, that was our four songs for the month. I should mention our mystery achievement. That song I played at the beginning of the episode, that was a band called Sloan, and their song Underwhelmed hit number 25 on the charts this month. Give the Canadians their due. I am, yeah. Giving them their due. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, Steve, before we get going, tell us about Toad Mortons and about Suscord, the new album. So there have been numerous incarnations of Toad Morton's. The Beware Morton's Murder Mile, the first record we recorded, we didn't really have a band to go out and play. And when we did, James Brazier, uh, who played for a little while in Sweet Children, which became Green Day, uh, became the drummer. And then we had a couple different people. And... Then that was one incarnation, and then there were several others over the years. It was, for most of its life, Davis, California, and Sacramento, and musicians from that area. But I moved up to Bellingham, Washington in 2019, and started working with musicians up here, and have been just really, really happy. The Playground came out after I moved up here, but it was it was mixed from afar, and that was recorded in one day. But uh, Suscord, um, you know, it was two and a half weeks of recording time, spread out over a year. And uh, a guy named Michael Connolly at MTC engineered and produced it, and uh, real happy with the way it came out. So I, I hope some people can hear it. I'll make sure to include a Spotify link along with this episode. So people have, there'll be one click away from checking out your album. Awesome. I guess that's it. If any listeners want to get a hold of me, they can reach me at thisismodernrock at gmail.com. I would definitely appreciate it if listeners would rate, subscribe, all that kind of good stuff. Thanks again, Steve, for joining me. It was a real pleasure. I'm going to send you all out today with the latest Toad Morton single. This one's called Second Sight. Second Sight. I get it right. I'd recognize all the things I should not say or do. Second sight, I get it right. I task myself.